Kubernetes is the container management platform that came out of Google's experiences managing data centers. Kubernetes abstracts away many of the frustrations of distributed systems management. OpenShift is a platform built on top of Kubernetes to provide an additional layer of usability. Clayton Coleman is the lead engineer of OpenShift, which originated at Red Hat. And in our conversation today, we start with the basics of Kubernetes, and then we talk about OpenShift. And Clayton explains why we need another abstraction on top of Kubernetes. Near the end of our conversation today, we discuss the current state of cloud products, which can be so confusing. Mesosphere, Swarm, Kubernetes, OpenStack, ECS, OpenShift, why do we need all of these different products? Clayton gives his perspective and explains why it is not going to get any less confusing anytime soon. Clayton Coleman is the lead engineer of OpenShift. Clayton, welcome to Software Engineering Daily. Great, it's great to be here. We've done a number of shows about Kubernetes, which is the container orchestration and management tool from Google. So I want to start by talking about Kubernetes because it's closely related to OpenShift. Give us a brief history on how Kubernetes evolved and what Kubernetes is today. Sure. So um, I got involved in Kubernetes actually before um, before it was released to the public. Uh, we'd been talking with Google about um, wanting to see the the kind of the evolution of containers and some of the some of the ideas that. Google likes to talk about it in their papers, bringing that to kind of the wider audience. And they had been considering for a long time open sourcing um, something like Kubernetes. And so we saw, you know, we got to see an early demo and had some great chats with them. Um, when Kubernetes was released, we, um, you know, I was uh, involved from kind of the very beginning. We've been discussing with them. And when they open sourced it, they asked, um, you know, Red Hat to, um, you know, to be a to be a partner in the Kubernetes project, you know, open Red Hat has a long history of um, helping nurture and grow open source communities. And um, this being a topic um, that was very near and dear to our hearts um, from the Red Hat side, you know, we were really excited to get involved. And so I think I was the first external committer to Kubernetes. And, you know, from the very beginning, um, you know, it was a real small team, um, but you could really tell that there was something really exciting about the ideas, you know, taking patterns that, that it, you know, you've seen, you know, I've been working on, um, you know, platform as a service and, you know, web application software pretty much my entire career. But a lot of the ideas that are part of Kubernetes, those core patterns, you see them and you say, you know what, this really is a better abstraction. You know, they've been refined by Google internally and the systems and, um, you know, practices they use. But there was also something to them that was the, the kind of the elegant simplicity of some of those ideas. And as you know, just we, we spent a ton of time in that first year, you know, just trying to hack to the point where we could get a, you know, a production Kubernetes one, release and a bunch of other people got involved. Um, it was a, it was a real, a lot of excitement in, um, you know, working on Kubernetes. It's been, you know, one of the, uh, certainly a singular experience in my life being able to, um, you know, to participate in a community with as many people who are as excited about, you know, making something that really does help uh, make running software at scale uh, easier. The excitement really is palpable, and I certainly see it in the numbers when I do episodes on Kubernetes, and I have these guests on who are Kubernetes experts. The shows perform extremely well, and it's quite obvious that there is 
there is something here that is changing how we build software. So let's talk about some of the main abstractions within Kubernetes, which are a pod, a service, and a replication controller. And you know, listeners who have been tuning in probably have heard these explanations before on previous episodes, but I, I think it's important, especially for people who are not working with these things on a day-to-day basis, to have these things redefined because they're going to be primitives that we are going to be working with for a long time. So what is a pod? What is a service? What is a replication controller? And, and am I missing out on any of the core abstractions of Kubernetes? So uh, I'll start with I'll start kind of that at that base level. So the the pod, um, you know, a lot of people are used to talking about containers. And if you've come from, you know, if you haven't been asleep for the last ten years, we've been talking about VMs for a long time. And I think the pod is the necessary bit of of abstraction, syntactic sugar around a single container that makes it feel just enough like a VM that you can bring a lot more workloads um, and types of applications to run in containers. And I think a lot of people who've been working with Docker for a long time have seen this is that the vast majority of the time, you know, maybe 75, 80% of the time, single container, you know, your web application talking to your database works great. But every now and then um, you hit this pattern where you say, you know what, I really need two processes. Um, you know, I might need a web application and a web server. So a lot of people do Nginx or HAProxy or Apache sitting in front of, um, you know, something like Ruby and, and running the unicorn uh, web server, for example. And every time they do that, there's kind of this little moment where they're like, well, what I really want is Apache and Ruby, but I don't want my Apache stuff to be too closely coupled to my Ruby. And I don't want my Ruby to have to, you know, every time I update Ruby, I don't necessarily want to update my Apache stuff. And I think that pod is that thing that binds it together, which is it's just enough glue um, that you can take all the patterns that you have when you think about single machines or VMs and apply it to containers. Um, And it gives you a nice place to hook on some of the other stuff that doesn't really change a lot. Like, for instance, if you are talking two things together, a lot of times, you know, if you're doing local development, you talk to stuff over localhost, you know, MySQL starts up and it it starts listening on the MySQL socket or it starts listening on localhost at, you know, port 3306, and your web application is used to talking to it on that port, there's kind of this nice idea as well, which is, well, those two containers, you know, sometimes they share file system. And if they share file system, they need to be on the same machine. And if they're on the same machine, you either got to go create this really complex concept to link them together or... Um, and treat them you know, as two independent containers, or you say, well, well, they're really just part of the same unit. And that's really what a pod is as well. And so each of these kind of things is just, just an, a little bit of syntactic sugar, a little bit of an abstraction that lets you kind of step back and be like, oh, it's just like a mini VM. Um, on top of that, replication controllers are really the, the first kind of primitive in Kubernetes that's the higher level. So it says, I want a couple of, I want multiple copies of a single pod. And if any of them go away, I deal with all the the messy details of going and creating a new one. And I deal with the messy details of waiting for pods to go away. So a replication controller really is just a template for a pod that stamps out those new copies. But it also kind of enshrines one of those core Kubernetes concepts, which is the idea of a controller. And the controller just says, well, hey, you told me what to go do. And my job 
is to make sure that's true. So the replication controller says, I want five copies of this pod. And there's some little process in the background that's handling that in Kubernetes. That means that you don't have to think about it anymore. And all the rest of the software that needs to deal with it doesn't have to think about it as well. You don't have to worry that there's six or four or 10, because if you wait long enough, there's going to be five again. And that's a, that's a really powerful pattern that is kind of a bedrock of a lot of the design choices in Kubernetes is um, the world's a complicated, messy place. And what you really want to get, what you strive for, and you know, not everybody always achieves this, is what you strive for is to dis- declare what you want and then have a whole bunch of really complicated software go do the right thing. And the, the replication controller is really the, the simplest example of that in Kubernetes. And then um, you know, obviously if you have a whole bunch of these um, pods and containers running, um, the next thing is that somebody else needs to be able to actually connect to those. And so a service in Kubernetes is really the idea of a simple load balancer, a self-contained um, unit. And you don't have to really worry about the details in Kubernetes. The details are there if you want them. But when you create a service, you say, go find all of the pods that have uh, these labels. And a label is just a key value pair that um, pods can have. And it allows you to say, go find all of the pods and surface them through a load balancer or surface them through a DNS name or don't surface them through a load balancer, but expose an Amazon or GCE load balancer to handle all the details. So it's really, again, it's declarative. I want anything, any pod, any bit of any container I have that says it's part of my web tier to be surfaced via this single endpoint. And then the flip side of services is um, somebody else has to be able to access that. So that's tied into DNS and Kubernetes so that every service you create has a DNS name and you can predictably go and um, access it from other pods. So those are really the three fundamental abstractions and everything else in Kubernetes really builds around. There's, there's tons of other concepts, you know, so many, you know, we're probably going to at some point stop adding concepts, but there's a lot of other pieces that are really fundamental parts of distributed systems um, to support those that, that build on those same ideas. Well, the advantage of Kubernetes is that it does abstract away so many of those distributed systems problems that have been causing us headaches for years and that have been aggregated by the rise of cloud. And if you're in AWS, nodes are failing all the time, and this creates this anxiety where you don't want to think, you don't want to have to worry about these machines that are transient and they're going to fail. You know, you want, you know, one thing that Kubernetes gets us is this you can treat your you can treat things at the level of a service you don't have to treat it at the level of the machine so you get this cattle not uh, what is it cattle not pets uh ideal where you don't have to think you don't have to think of like oh this is box you know um you know vm one two three four five six seven um, I need to make sure VM one two three four five six seven stays alive. You can just think in terms of the abstraction of a service, and you can know with confidence that the service will take care of all of the underlying plumbing uh, of if a box fails. Uh, you know, it's going to fail. The the service is going to fail over to some other box, and so you get this this glorious abstraction away from distributed systems, and that is the. That is the, the the platform that creates all of this opportunity. I think that's what you're getting at when you say, like, there's such a fundamental change that we can just build and build and build and build on top of this because it takes away such a big headache. Um, so when did Red Hat get involved with Kubernetes? 
So I think it was the second day that the Kubernetes public um, repo uh, was out there. So after Google announced um, Kubernetes at uh, Google I.O. Did, did you say that, that Google came to Red Hat or Red Hat came to Google? Um, we had we had been discussing, you know, at Red Hat, um, you know, I work on the OpenShift team and OpenShift is platform as a service. Um, you know, we've been looking around, you know, we, we saw the, the rise of Docker and we saw the um, the we knew that there was a new opportunity um, to build a better platform as a service. You know, kind of the first generation and second generation platform as a service was, you know, 12 factor apps, very simple, stateless. Um, you know, you can adopt the mindset and you get benefits, but not everything fits into that neat box. And we were looking for an opportunity to build something. So we had been discussing with Google kind of the idea of, um, you know, seeing what's out there, we had considered Mesos and, um, and we've been working with um, Docker for a long time and some of the other people in the community. Um, we worked with the OpenStack project a little bit and we were really looking for the right fundamental abstraction for the distributed system for the, you know, for cloud native applications. And so we, um, you know, when Google open sourced um, Kubernetes, I think the second day, you know, I opened a PR and I, I still see the, the comments on that PR thread uh, occasionally. It's kind of a, it was one of the first things I changed, and I occasionally still get bugs in that. But you know, kind of from day one, Red Hat um, and the people on the OpenShift team and in the, the larger Red Hat, um, you know, open source community have been really heavily involved in Kubernetes and make, trying to make it successful both as a community and as a as a tool for people to deploy and build applications. So let's get into OpenShift. What is OpenShift? So the old answer I would have given would be OpenShift as platform as a service. And um, just like um, Heroku or Cloud Foundry, it focused on making it easy for developers to push buttons and get simple web applications spun up that could consume um, you know, databases. Um, I think a little bit unlike um, Heroku or Cloud Foundry, um, OpenShift had kind of started with the mindset that we wanted to make it possible to run stateful applications. But at the time, um, you know, when OpenShift started in, in uh, 2011, the, um, the underlying concepts in the Linux kernel for running containers were somewhat new. And so, um, you know, we started working with, you know, kind of those fundamental primitives and we supported building things with RPMs. And as we built up, we realized, well, we are a platform as a service, but we want to be something different. So now when people ask me what, um, what OpenShift is, I would say... OpenShift is a platform for building cloud-native applications, and that includes um, stateless 12-factor apps, but it also includes that whole other class of applications, which is um, really being a place to run every kind of software. Um, and, you know, we're not there yet, but I'd like to think that that's um, the big picture is to be able to run all the world's software. We have Kubernetes. We already talked about all the value of Kubernetes. Why do we need a higher level abstraction like OpenShift? So I, OpenShift is, um, at the time that Kubernetes started, um, Kubernetes was a, primarily a runtime system. So you know we, we talked about those concepts of pods and replication controllers and services. And those abstractions, the, really the next question is, okay, well, I want to build applications. Well, what do I need? Well, I need to change those applications. I need to roll out deployments. Um, I want to expose those applications not just to other services within inside the cluster, but I want to expose them outside of my cluster. Um, I want to do um, load balancing at a HTTP level. And so um, at the same time that you know, we're contributing to Kubernetes to help build up those core runtime concepts, in OpenShift, we built um, the things that you need to manage and roll out images. So you know, just like 
um, you know, just like we talk about, um, you know, containers, the big benefit of containers is the ability to deploy images that contain everything in them, um, the ability to treat them mutably and to roll them out. But you actually need a system for building and managing those. So on top of Kubernetes, um, OpenShift originally offered deployments, images, the ability to manage, uh, you know, an integrated Docker registry that could do access control and quota and promotion of images across the whole cluster, as well as builds, um, you know, and not just Docker builds, but also simpler builds, builds where a developer just brings source code. And that source code gets built into a runtime environment, a little bit like um, Heroku build packs. But these are fun, you know, these are just Docker images, so they can do anything. They can install RPMs or they can um, go and download things from the internet. You know, it's a much more powerful um, build environment. And so that, that, that ability to manage the life cycle of an application is really what OpenShift is all about. And along the way, we added a lot of other features, um, some of which have um, you know, made it into Kubernetes as well now, things like access control and security. OpenShift is a multi-tenant um, container platform. So obviously, we need to do things like preventing everybody on the cluster from getting root inside of a container or preventing people from taking too many resources. So things like quota and access control are features that um, the OpenShift team actually contributed back to Kubernetes. And most of the things that we think of as OpenShift today, um, we think of as uh, the enterprise aspect, you know, being able to run a multi-tenant container cluster, not just one for myself, but then also being able to manage and run applications. And there's a lot of exciting stuff coming in OpenShift over the you know, next couple of years to say, well, what are the other tools that you need? You know, how do I continuously deploy and continually integrate software on top of a cloud platform and really take advantage of that, you know, not just being able to run my production applications, but what if I want to spin up a test application, run my end to end tests against it and then spin it down kind of in a hermetically sealed bubble. And a lot of those things are things that, um, you know, will continue to be evolve in the larger Kubernetes ecosystem. Um, but in OpenShift, that's really our, our bread and butter is making it easy to build and develop applications. Kubernetes has these abstractions that we've already talked about, a pod, replication controller, service, there are other abstractions. OpenShift has its own set of abstractions, and I want to talk about these. In OpenShift, containers are called gears. A gear is a container that is allocated CPU and memory and disk and network bandwidth. Why didn't you just use the term container? Explain the difference in abstraction between gear and container. Well, and actually, that's kind of the old terminology. So um, when OpenShift started, most people had no idea what containers were. And so gear was really a way of um, when you think about how you bring together a bunch of independent units of um, you know, computation, you had the VM concept. But in 2011, you know, nobody knew what containers were. It really took the rise of Docker to bring that up. So uh, a gear is really what we used to just call an old container or what containers would be called today. We've actually um, you know, removed that terminology when we think of OpenShift today. OpenShift is just Kubernetes plus the features on top. And so all of the core Kubernetes concepts are exposed and available in OpenShift. So again, we don't, we don't actually even use the gear terminology anymore. We just say containers and pods and replication controllers and services. I see. So does the same go for the idea of container images? Because I, I think think if i was reading about this correctly a container uh like an image a container image is called a cartridge so is is, is has that vocabulary also been deprecated or is there still the idea of a cartridge no the, the, definitely the idea um that you know that is the old terminology so today openshift is completely image focused but i think a lot of those ideas around cartridges are actually things that people are finding so 
the idea of a cartridge is you want to be able to offer a chunk of software like uh, a plug and play. Yeah, plug and play framework. And it's not just enough to have a package. You know, you can't just take a, you can't do apt get and have a, a Ruby framework running that includes your code. You got to have those little bits of glue code around it that says, okay, well, I'm going to take your Ruby code and I'm going to do a bundle install. And so just like Heroku build packs, like a Heroku build pack is a set of Ruby code that runs on top of an Ubuntu base. Um, the cartridge was a bunch of, um, of script and Ruby and Python code that ran on top of an, uh, a Fedora and CentOS and um, Red Hat Enterprise Linux base. Each of those little connection points, those little affordances that are there to help developers like, hey, I'm going to go install your gems for you. You don't need to worry about it. That's really the fundamentals of a cartridge. And if you look at what people are doing in images today, all of those same patterns apply. So for instance, if you look at the MySQL image um, that is published on the Docker Hub, that MySQL image takes environment variables that go set up passwords for you and they do the pre-configuration of the MySQL image. But every bit of that tuning that... When the container starts up, it needs to figure out how much memory it has and scale itself appropriately, or if it wants to take source code and build that up. Each of those concepts still exist today. We just don't have a, a nice formal name for it anymore in the, uh, in the container world. We just we say, well, it's an image, but some images are better than others. So in OpenShift, you have an application, and uh, the application is defined by a config. Explain that process of, like, making an application and what do, what does an application consist of and like maybe you could articulate how it's defined via an explanation of the config sure so in kubernetes we have pods and replication controllers and you have services um, on top of that you want to be able to say hey every time i have a new image available i want to go roll that out so in openshift we call that a, a deployment config and a deployment config looks a lot like a replication controller but um, when you change it, it goes and orchestrates a rollout for you. And so that idea is actually, um, you know, astute listeners, people who've been using Kubernetes will, will be familiar with that. That's what uh, the deployment object in Kubernetes is based around, that idea that there's a simple declarative definition of your pod that you change and that manages the rollout for you. So that's the one bit. So again, it's OpenShift added a concept um, and then, you know, we've, we've added that into Kubernetes and we'll continue evolving it. That is a, a definition of your containers, your pod, your environment variables, how much resources you want, really all the same things that are in a pod. Um, but on top of that, OpenShift also uses the same config objects as Kubernetes. There's really there's nothing that's um, fundamentally different. So we have services, um, just like Kubernetes, and the service is a definition of what you want to serve. And then on top of that, OpenShift has added um, routes. And so a route is... Um, is the ability to say, I want to be exposed to the external world um, in a way, you know, you don't always want to expose everything that you run inside your cluster to the outside world. It might not have a password on it. It might be a debugging port. And so the route's really how you communicate that. So in an OpenShift application definition, you'd have a deployment config, you'd have a service, you might have a route. Um, routes would be familiar to Kubernetes readers as ingresses. Um, we took the core route idea and work to get it into the upstream community on that. And then um, the most fundamental part is obviously a build. So you want to be able to take source code and combine it with another image or a, a base runtime and then have an image that gets repeatedly deployed. And so for OpenShift, that kind of the fourth bit is a build definition, um, which 
take source code, a Git repository, or you can push binary contents directly to it, or you can pull down other images and suck contents out of them to build a new image. And when you push that image, that actually triggers a deployment. So again, a lot of the concepts in OpenShift are very familiar to uh, most Kubernetes users. Um, they're layers on top. This is kind of what I talked about at the beginning. You know, Kubernetes is designed as this composable system. We want to have core ideas that you can build these layers on top of. An OpenShift application is really a Kubernetes application with some of the additional tools that a developer might want to be able to push code. And to make that a little bit easier, OpenShift has um, a number of command line tools and web tools that allow you to easily pull together all of these bits. You know, sometimes people say, well, Kubernetes has so many concepts in its, um, in its API objects that it's really hard to approach them. And so in OpenShift, we actually have a number of tools that you give us a, a Git repo and we can spit out the full Kubernetes application and run that for you, do the builds for you automatically so that you get that PaaS style experience, but you still have that top to bottom control. Is it at the level where when you spin up a new OpenShift project for the first time, it's as simple and seamless as if I'm setting up my first Ruby on Rails application. Like, is it that level of speed to, you know, from zero to hello world? You know, this is an interesting one. Um, everyone, there's all sorts of different types of developers out there in the world. And to anybody who's been working with Docker for a couple of years, the idea of spinning up a container and running a whole containerized cluster, you know, just on your laptop is starting to feel a little bit like old hat. Um, you know, there's a lot of things in Kubernetes and OpenShift that make it easy to just get running in a single container. But for a lot of other developers, um, you know, once you have an OpenShift installation, which can, you know, it involves some knowledge about Docker and what's going on in the system. But yeah, once you have that um, cluster running, um, there's a you know, easy use command line that you say, I want to build a new application from this Git repo. And we'll look at the Git repo, figure out what um, what 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 it is. So in, um, if it's a Ruby repo, we'll see the gem file and we'll say, oh, we want to pair this up with a Ruby image that an administrator or comes pre-canned with the system and off you go. So if I work at a company where... I'm building the entire infrastructure, the entire software infrastructure on OpenShift. I might want to use a template to standardize how I create configuration for applications so that anytime a new developer wants to build an application on the platform, they can use that template. So explain why a template might be useful to standardize how things work across an organization. Sure. So if... And I think this is something that we thought of early on is that if we want to have all this power, you know, the, the ability to be very expressive, we needed to have a simple concept to kind of tie that all together. And so a template in OpenShift is a, is a simple parameterized set of Kubernetes and OpenShift API objects. So if I wanted to um, take a Ruby application that I had running, I would just grab those API objects, put them in a template file in their native form, JSON or YAML. And I could go in around those objects, I could add parameterization. So for instance, if um, I wanted to parameterize an environment variable, like the password of my MySQL database, that's something I could very easily do in that template. I would say, you know, here's the, I want to replace the MySQL password environment variable in each of these, uh, in each of these definitions inside the API object. So it's, it's really a simple packaging of API objects. And that simplicity was really key. We didn't want to create an abstraction on top of Kubernetes that hid all the flexibility, but we wanted to make it more approachable. So a template is really a formalization, a parameterization of something that works. And when you deploy that 
template, you're really just going and creating each of those objects with that simple substitution. And so for a lot of the, you know, when we, when we think about this in the, um, you know, software is hard, right? There's a lot of things in building web applications that requires you to get in the guts of the code. And we wanted to make it easy to have pre-canned examples that showed people where to start. So if you're coming into Kubernetes for the first time and you've never had to go deal with a pod or a service or replication controller, um, the idea of a template is, is the template can show you it working and then help you walk backwards and find those steps so you can dig into the details if you want to add all of the power of Kubernetes, things that help your application keep running in production, like health checks and liveness checks, setting resources, um, security controls, and, and the like. And so if I'm a large organization, I might build templates for my developers that are the pre-canned base application definitions I want them to use. So a, a Tomcat stack or a, a Java OpenJDK stack that's got all of my standard jars in it. And the developers are still free to go and customize that and bring their own code, but it's a starting point and helps them get up to speed quickly. When I think about usability things that we get out of OpenShift, by what we get out of this layer on top of Kubernetes, one thing I think about is continuous integration. Does does the continuous integration experience, like the Jenkins integration, does does the... Does the OpenShift integration does that give you a lot of value add uh, in you know on top of whatever whatever co- continuous integration workflow you would have on just naked Kubernetes? It does, and this is a this is a really active area of development for us right now. Where we in OpenShift, we wanted to make it easy for you to define a, a process that keeps working. So I talked about build configs and deployment configs. So I set up a build. And I can set up a webhook or a, um, a poll. And every time my source code changes, it starts a build. If the build succeeds, that pushes an image. If the image gets pushed, it updates the deployment and the source code rolls out. So that's that, that idea that as a developer, what we really want to get to is defining the process where we're continually changing, right? That's the heart of Agile. That's the heart of um, DevOps is um, using the automation and all these tools to help us get what we actually have to get done, which is you know deploy software, build and deploy software. And so we have these base concepts in OpenShift that let you do the simple flows. But in reality, and I think this is kind of a this is a recognition of the difference between Kubernetes and all of the paths that came before was the world isn't so simple that you can just get away with saying, well, we're just going to run 12-factor apps. And just like that for continuous integration and continuous deployment, the world isn't so simple that you can say, well, we're just going to push a single image and then run some automated tests and roll it out to production. And so with that observation came the fact that, well, we want to have the best possible platform for running continuous integration and deployment. And to us, uh, you know, I, I pretty strongly believe that that's Jenkins because if you look out there, the Jenkins community is one of the most thriving, vibrant CI/CD communities that has ever existed. Um, there's plugins for practically everything you can imagine, and what's more, the Jenkins community has really reacted to the um, to the evolution of CI/CD by taking a lot of those lessons to heart. You know, Jenkins 1.0 has been out for <laughs> quite a long time, taking those ideas to heart and and using that to build the next version of Jenkins. So Jenkins 2.0 um, puts at its heart the idea of a pipeline. And that pipeline is a, a definable process that um, you can put 
you can use all those Jenkins plugins if you want, but you have some central definition that says, here's how my code runs through the lifecycle. And to us on OpenShift, well, we have a platform that makes it really easy to spin up and run applications, to consume cloud resources, to do builds on demand on the, on the cluster infrastructure. And to us, so that marriage of Jenkins pipelines with OpenShift is really fundamental. So with OpenShift um, 1.3, um, which will be coming out later this year, um, and actually, the very first alpha release of OpenShift um, 1.3 was just released yesterday. So we've started to publish some of the first pieces of this. You can um, On OpenShift, you can push a Git repo that has a Jenkins file in it. That Jenkins file, which is really the heart of Jenkins 2.0's pipelines, will actually cause the platform to spin up Jenkins to run that build for you. And then the Jenkins plugin, we've built a number of plugins um, in the open community that let you leverage OpenShift as a place to run, build, and deploy applications. So you kind of get um, the best of both worlds. You have all the flexibility of Jenkins, but OpenShift out of the box is giving um, developers a way to not have to think about the details of managing a Jenkins server. Instead, we think that Jenkins servers really should be a tool that just like Kubernetes can summon whole, uh, summon whole compute infrastructures and storage resources and networks um, to your beck and call, we want to make the same thing easily available for um, bringing builds and applications. So in your Jenkins file, being able to do very complex deployment and testing that you don't have to think really about where things run or how much resources they're all just running containers um, on OpenShift. Well, it's so relevant because there's all kinds of different testing workloads, just like there's different database workloads, and um, it makes a lot of sense. So, you know, average listener right now probably is working at a company where they have Ruby on Rails deployed to AWS, or they have like a Java Spring application running on their own servers, or maybe on Azure or something. So there are all these different states that companies are in. How do these different companies, how do, what are some typical migration strategies for migrating from X to OpenShift or to or or even just to Kubernetes? Like what is what is this typical migration look like when you're trying to get onto OpenShift? That's a great question. Um, I I have to say that this is probably the the thing that I spend a lot of my time talking to people about is... The switching cost. That's right, is that everybody has an investment. And that investment's really important. So um, if I've built a, a CICD pipeline with Jenkins and AWS and you know I'm using that, it always comes down to what value do I get out of switching? And um, one of the primary goals that we've tried to keep in mind as we've developed OpenShift is that nothing that we've wanted to do should feel like you have to completely upend your entire process in order to benefit from something like Kubernetes or containerization or on-demand Jenkins. And so at every level, we've kind of approached it from the perspective of people are generally looking for opportunities to improve their workflow. And they do that if it's easier, faster, and and simpler, and they can understand it and control it. And so um, a great example would be if I've got an application that I'm looking to move into Docker containers, at the same time, I might say, well, I'm doing this so that I can bundle up all my dependencies and set up a reproducible workflow and be able to test the same thing in development that I do in production. But then the next question that usually comes up is, okay, well, how do I set that that pipeline up. And there's a lot of options. You can run Jenkins, you can build bash scripts. Um, you know, a lot of people out there are, you can use the Docker hub. A lot of people are using um, variations on this tool with OpenShift. We wanted to make it as easy as possible to say, well, we can provide the builds 
to build images, but you don't have to deploy on OpenShift. You could just use OpenShift as a very simple um, build orchestration engine. Um, we also look at it from the other perspective, which is a lot of people come to Kubernetes and say, well, I want to run the f- my production applications on Kubernetes, but I'm not yet at the point where I find value in developing on top of Kubernetes. And so we tried to approach it from the perspective of, okay, well, well, if Kubernetes is really great for big, large deployments, can we make it easier to run a local deployment of OpenShift where you can test out that same deployment that you'll use in production? Um, because again, like you can test everything in Docker containers on your machine, but the primary value, the, the thing that we say we really want to be able to do is enable people to move from dev to production without changing anything. If I've got to go rewrite all of the, the glue code or the compose files because my operations team doesn't let me run as root or I'm running a different network or I've got different load balancing rules in production that I do in development, um, one option is to say, well, I'll just do it two places. But with OpenShift, we've tried to make it so easy to run OpenShift locally in a container that you could test everything um, on your local box. Uh, you know, if you're working with Docker containers, you can build these images, test them all out, push them to OpenShift, see how it is, and then push to production. We've tried to meet people where they are. And I, I think this is the hardest problem in computing, which is how do I pick the next new thing that's going to make it easier for me to do my job? And um, the, there's no one answer that unfortunately solves everybody's problems. It's be useful in all the different ways that people need you to be useful. Well, one tactical analogy I think about is that when Netflix was migrating its infrastructure to the cloud, the first thing that they migrated was the job board. And so they took this strategy of the minimum impact to how the company works in order to test out this new key piece of infrastructure because it created this extremely low pressure environment. So once they got the job board on AWS, they're like, well, this works just fine. Okay, let's move the, you know, movie movie ranking system or Netflix for kids or some other small component. And then as that process gets standardized, as you learn how to move something to the cloud or move something to OpenShift, then it becomes baked into the culture, just naturally, gradually. So, so I don't know. Does this does this sound like a plausible route to onboarding? Like you you basically fork the infrastructure and you start migrating small things to it. Not only is that plausible, I think that's probably the only thing that actually ever works. Um, which is to be confident that something's going to work, you have to try it. And if you if you haven't tried it, it's probably going to fail, or at least. You stand a lot lower chance of success um, if you if you make a big step before you make a little step. We've actually seen this a lot. So typically, when people adopt OpenShift, um, you know, they they come to OpenShift. They want Kubernetes, but they also want the the controls around who can do what, quotas, security, RBAC, integration with LDAP, all those um, things that we add on top of Kubernetes. And what they typically do is they start with one class of application. And it's interesting. Um, OpenShift kind of in the in the generation one platform as a service world, it said, well, make it easy for developers to experiment and then push to production. But in practice, what we see a lot of is, um, is what you said is people taking an application and they might have processes fully defined for how they build that application, but they don't have to change those at the very end. They would say, okay, well, we're going to run the last step that converts this to the config files that run on OpenShift, and we can deploy that to an OpenShift cluster. And they'll run one or two applications and get comfortable with it in transition. Um, what we've also started to see, actually, is people bringing workloads to Kubernetes that 
actually don't even look anything like what we typically think of as a platform as a service workload. Um, so people who are bringing job frameworks or people who want to run um, very large um, you know, trading applications or, or complex applications, but what they're really looking for is a standard application environment. And it's, you know, it's been a challenge, which is we've kept going through these successive generations. You, know, you, can, you can go with AWS, but then you have to make sure that you don't get too locked into AWS if you want to jump to Azure. Or um, you build something locally on OpenStack, but it doesn't work when you run it on someone else's OpenStack. Or you don't care about OpenStack at all because you're just a small dev, but you want to see some of this value, so you want to run on Docker Swarm. And at the end of the day, what we've tried to do with OpenShift is um, we want to make the a great and we think this is really what kubernetes is has really succeeded at is it has all the right patterns in place to be a great place to run applications and our goal will be to help people be able to run those applications anywhere and that should mean anywhere from the from a laptop to the cloud to a data center to a couple of machines that are sitting over in the corner that you want to try this out and get used to it and i think that that kind of adaptation the reality that uh, you're looking for something that makes it easier for you to stay flexible um, is a big part of what people find value. And they want to be able to move workloads from place to place. And Kubernetes and OpenShift, I think, are a great place um, to do that. So I was at OSCON recently, and I spent a lot of time walking around the vendor booths because I like talking to the vendors and getting a sense of the market and how people are thinking about things, how they're marketing their products. And there is so much confusion in this space. There is so many of these cloud and platform as a service and container things, whether we're talking about OpenShift or Cloud Foundry or OpenStack or Docker or Mesosphere or um, EMC's offering or whatever whatever thing Rackspace is, is, is trying to get me to buy. And I have no idea how to make sense of this. And I spend basically all of my time as a journalist in this environment, so... You know, for developers who are in it, I imagine it's it's even harder because you know you not only are you trying to assess these different things, you're trying to get your work done day to day, and all of these different companies are trying to sell you this vision that, oh no, don't listen to those other guys. We're the ones who have the real cloud. So how how as you're a, as a developer in this world, how the heck do you make sense of all these different products? You know, I think that it has gotten. It is only going to get worse from here, which is kind of a scary thought. <laughs> but it's also it's literally it, like it's literally like going to the store and you see like organic and natural <laughs> and and like homegrown, and you're like, what the hell are these things? But at the same time, it's fantastic, right? So if you think about 20 years ago, you could maybe cobble together some bash scripts that with SSH and some keys, you might have a chance of running something on a couple of different machines, maybe if you didn't look at it too hard. But if you like, then you look around today and you say, well, I don't just have one choice for these massive cloud scanning applications. You know, I don't just have the choice of one environment. I have tens or hundreds. And in some respects, it's a great thing because it forces everybody to think about what actually matters, which is how can you actually improve someone like a developer's life? And 
at the end of the day, the beauty of all this choice is that it's pretty easy to filter out the things that aren't useful to you. And everything's kind of useful, right? Like at the end of the day, um, you know, all the vendors love to, to posture and say, you know, my platform's better, you know, I can do this, I'm faster, you know, I can, I can handle greater scale. But at the end of the day, we as developers get to say, well, you're all pretty good. I'll just use one of you. And the hard choices usually come, well, you know, is this, is this secure or can I change this easily? And I think that's, I think if there's one saving grace is that open source as a, as a community, you know, the, all the different types of open source, not just the, you know, the, the grizzled, you know, um, gray beard sitting in his, uh, sitting in his basement, you know, slamming out Linux kernel code, but the guys in Silicon Valley, um, you know, the people all over the world in China and India and Europe who are actually contributing to this massive experiment of open source and it's all available to us. I think that is really, I think we win even with all these choices is that we as developers have more power than we ever have and it's only going to get better. So I, I tend to, I can sometimes be cynical about all the choice, but at the same time I think, well, if what we're offering, if what we're building um, to enable developers isn't good enough, um, then it'll get replaced by something that's even better. And that's the really the exciting part of being you know involved in Kubernetes and OpenShift and Docker as a whole is that it's this, it is this ferment of innovation that has driven everyone to build better things. And the hard part is really picking, I mean, if, if the worst problem we have is this surfeit of choice, I think I can live with that. In the name of not succumbing to the obfuscation and the confusion, I want to, I guess, dive into a, a few of these other products, um, these other tools. So OpenStack, I, I did a show on OpenStack recently, and OpenStack is a platform as a service and a platform as a service usually runs on top of an infrastructure as a service. Or I'm sorry. Uh, no, I said that wrong. OpenShift is the platform right. as a service. OpenStack is the infra- open source infrastructure as a service that companies can use underneath OpenShift. So talk more about the relationship between OpenStack and OpenShift and like how that's going to evolve over time. Sure. So it's... It's been really interesting. Um, OpenStack has started to reach kind of what we would maybe call maturity, right? People are people are fairly comfortable with it. They know what they're getting. They're not on that that crazy upgrade cycle necessarily. And so OpenStack really helps people more easily deploy virtualization. I, I think at its core, OpenStack is has done a great job of bringing all the tools that help people make that transformation. Um, you know, the cloud, the big cloud providers kind of incentivized everybody else who didn't want to run on the cloud to build something that was, that offered that equivalent feature set. You know, the ability to run VMs, the ability to deal with storage and, and block devices somewhat generically and all the, you know, the, the myriad of projects to manage networks and, um, you know, Swift and the ability to do something like S3 and object storage um, in a standard way, all of those tools are really fundamental to building applications, but they're not enough. And I think that's where, um, you know, one of the things we talk about when we think about what is the distinction between Kubernetes and OpenShift and all these other things out there in the world is, to me, the goal of Kubernetes is to be the best place to run applications. And, and by applications, I mean the things that we build day-to-day, web applications, networked applications. And up till now, a lot of the times we've been thinking about this from an infrastructure perspective. How do I get more VMs? How do I get more storage? And Kubernetes and OpenShift is an opportunity to turn that discussion around and say, well, what do we actually want as applications? 
And then we don't have to worry about all those details of the infrastructure. That's somebody else's problem. So, you know, everyone is happy to go do it themselves when you're using the cloud or running on top of OpenStack because it's better than what we had before. But I think our, you know, kind of the position I see is it's not enough. We want to blur those lines. Um, as an application developer, I want to specify what my application looks like and what it needs. And that's somebody else's job to make sure I get the storage I want. So the conversation really be, becomes, instead of saying, I want this VM and I want to install this patch level and it needs to be connected to these networks, we change the discussion to say, I need a network address. Um, I want it to be fairly high performance. I need 10 gigs of storage and I don't want you to restart me more than once a month because I'm a production critical service. And so it moves the discussion to more about what the application needs rather than the how, the the why. I need this application to be running 99% of the time versus, well, I hope nobody restarts that VM accidentally. So I think the future is tighter integration between infrastructure, right? The APIs, the patterns, the tools get easier to use. And that enables us to build better abstractions that that say, you know, I don't really care what kind of storage my application uses as long as it's fast, no one else can write to it at the same time. And when I need it, it gets snapped up, snapshotted and backed up and I don't have to think about it. So it's really about going that extra step above infrastructure to think about application first. In your vision of the future, should everybody be using Kubernetes and potentially OpenShift, or is there a place for these other schedulers like Docker Swarm and Mesos and ECS? I think there'll always be um, lots of reasons that people want to make investments in lots of different spaces. You know, our I think our our job with OpenShift, um, you know, the thing that gets me up and gets me to work every morning is I want to make it as easy and as powerful and as useful as possible. And so I think there'll always be reasons that, um, you know, ECS is a great example. ECS has close integration with a lot of the AWS APIs. It makes it easy to go do these. You know, you can point to features all day long and say this has it or this doesn't. But kind of getting back to that earlier point is um, I think our goal is to be as good as we can in OpenShift and Kubernetes at running applications. And if we succeed and that's useful for for end developers, then people will want to run on it. And I think there will be a place for the different kinds of workloads. You know, Kubernetes, um, we want to build a really great platform for running all kinds of applications. But I think the I think the catch in that, the asterisk, is it's a lot of work to deal with all of the complexity of the world. And so I think you'll always have some level of um, there's things that Docker Swarm can optimize for, um, like being able to start containers as absolutely fast as possible that we don't worry about in Kubernetes because our job is um, trying to move to that higher level abstraction saying, I don't really actually want to deal with individual containers. Mm. I want to deal with a service. And so some of these levels of abstraction come with costs. And Mesos potentially is even higher level, kind of the opposite view, the distributed system for distributed systems, whatever that means, uh, would actually, you know, I I could totally, I I don't mean to to, to sound like I'm incredulous or anything. I think that's actually a plausible future where, you know, just like you just like you said, Docker Swarm. Maybe you know you can have closer control over the containers. Mesos, maybe you know, there's this future where uh, we need. I need to. to I, I want to be able to manage all of my different Kubernetes in- instances from 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 the point of view of Mesos. And uh, I don't. I don't know. But like, I I think I think it's one of these things where 
like right now you have to squint in order to see the differences, but over time it will become much more delineated. And, and I think that's a great example. Um, you know, there's a lot of great work that's been done in Mesos, and we we know of a lot of people who build and run job frameworks. You know, one of the distinctions that I draw between Mesos and Kubernetes is um, Kubernetes is very focused on making it easy for you to run highly scalable, um, re- resilient, redundant applications. And I think if you look at if you look at what when you're running a Mesos framework, um, Mesos at the lower level doesn't provide that something like marathon or chronos does and so if you think about what kubernetes is it's really an equivalent of it's a single system that tries to do mesos plus marathon plus chronos and to do it with a consistent set of objects that are all you know well aligned with each other and so there will always be areas where um getting down to the metal uh, and something like Mesos will actually give you an advantage. You can you can run faster, you can schedule more um, because you're focused on a different problem set. And it, it is an interesting challenge. I do think the one, the one thing that always gets back to me is that Kubernetes was designed, um, you know, by the same, you know, Kubernetes, the, the people involved in the Kubernetes community from the Google side are the same people who helped design Google's internal cloud infrastructure. And so there's always these little, we have, we have a lot of great discussions where you can, you can see how the perspective of running these things at Google, where, you know, the, the kind of the classic phrase they say is the data center is a computer, that mindset really permeates. So there is no alternate scheduler in the Google worldview because you have bare metal running Kubernetes, you know, the Borg, um, the internal equivalent of, um, you know, what Kubernetes is an evolution of. They run that and they run their workloads on top of it. And, you know, they can build everything they need to support that. And so there really is no other layer. But then you get out in the messy world of open source, um, you know, where you have all these systems that that fit at these different labels, layers, infrastructure as a service, you know, things like Ansible and Puppet and Chef that do lower level config management. You have people who have existing workflows. And I think that's what you see is that um, everybody has particular things that have you know, nobody's coming at this from a clean slate. They all have um, accumulated processes and workflows. And it's sometimes tough. Like, you know, the Kubernetes mindset is very much, you know, metal to the sky. But in the real world, people adapt these new tools like Kubernetes to fit into systems that they already have. So I think it'll be interesting over the next couple of years as the space grows between these, um, between the different um, container orchestrators. Right. Yeah, we are not Google. And so therefore, we have to deal with... Um things like integration and um, more real world issues. Uh, You know, I think it's, it's so interesting because for many years we've had this dynamic with Google where Google releases a paper as soon as they have something that is like 10 years ahead of the paper. (laughs) And so what I wonder is like, what, what does Borg actually do? Like does, is Borg, is Borg 10 years ahead of Kubernetes? Are they doing something you know, some other kind of uh, abstraction or tool set that is more powerful than Kubernetes? Or have they shifted that internal mindset to say, okay, we want to dominate the cloud. And in order to dominate the cloud, we want to move to the Amazon mindset where our internal infrastructure, we would love to uh, externalize as much of that as possible. You know, this is a really interesting question, and I won't presume to speak for any of um, for any of the my fellow uh, Google Kubernetes community. Uh, contributors, some of whom, you know, having worked with for two years, like, you know, the the friendships and the the bond and the community has been really strong. I won't presume to speak for what they're doing internally. But I think um, one thing that I've noticed is that everybody on Kubernetes um, has a sense of pride and applying lessons learned. 
Um, so I can't say for sure whether Google has something that's 10 times better internally, but I can absolutely say for sure that um, the focus on Kubernetes is to learn from all of the learn from all of the decisions and choices that Google made internally, but also to learn from the open source community. Um, you know, I, the, I, I remember an early discussion we had on a Kubernetes issue where we were talking about health checks and, um, you know, there's a, if you have a health check in Kubernetes, it'll restart your pod if, or restart your container if it dies, but it also can be used to add you into a load balancer. And there was a particular discussion, which was, well, I don't think this is a really issue. This is really an issue because the health check would catch it. And I was like, well, but you guys know that like 99% of software that comes out of the box out there doesn't have a health check. And there was just, <laughs> this, there was this really long pause where you saw that whole worldview shifting. And I think that's a little bit of the dynamic that we've had in the Kubernetes community. It's, it's taking these lessons learned from, you know, 10 years of Borg and saying, we don't want to make those mistakes again, but then also taking the lessons from the open source community, from all the contributors, from Red Hat, from CoreOS, from um, people from Meteor, from the individual, uh, you know, people who just drop in to say, I'm running this workload and I need it to work better, is trying to, to gather those patterns that actually like, you know, not just on the open source side, not just on the Google side, but you know, kind of everybody's problems and put them together. And that's been, that has been, I think there's been the source of all of my funny stories, as well as all of some of the most enjoyable discussions where you get to see someone else's perspective about um, how they run things and you tweak it a little bit and you see these patterns emerge. You know, I think um, just like, I would kind of characterize it as, you know, we had the gang of four for design patterns for computer science. And then we had patterns of enterprise application architecture for you know Java EE applications uh, in the 2000s. I think Kubernetes is patterns of distributed application development, and I, it's been a real treat to work on the project and to see all these patterns come out. All right, well, let's close on that note. Um, Clayton, thanks for coming on the show. Uh, it's been a really interesting conversation. I'm a big fan of OpenShift and Kubernetes. Everybody can go check out OpenShift, Red Hat OpenShift. Um, yeah, appreciate it. Great great to have you on. Thank you very much. I appreciated it. <laughs>